Please take your Bibles and join me in Acts chapter 12. Acts 12, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 24 this morning. If you're using the blue ESV Bible in the seat backs in front of you, you can find our text on page 920. 920. The title of our sermon is uh, Death and Deliverance, and the key words for our worshipers and training are kill, imprison, and disturbance. Over the past several months, since February, as we've been working through the book of Acts, we've seen the way in which God's kingdom, uh, now ruled by the resurrected and exalted Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, We've seen how God's kingdom uh, was beginning to expand on the earth after the first coming of Christ. After conquering sin and death, Jesus commissioned His apostles to bear witness to His resurrection, to His kingship once they had received the Holy Spirit and the power He would supply. And so in Acts 2, we, we read of that account. And so beginning in Jerusalem and then extending to the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria and outward to the very ends of the earth, they began to to bear witness. And God used that witness to bring folks in to the kingdom from every nation under heaven. Now when we looked at Acts 1-8 and the commissioning of the apostles by the Lord Jesus, we noted that their witness, while a witness of the triumph of Jesus... In his resurrection, their witness would nevertheless be marked by suffering. Jesus is the victorious king, but his path to the crown was necessarily through the cross. And so it is for all who follow him. In Acts chapter 3, a conflict began to grow between the disciples of King Jesus and the followers of the prince of this world who had been put to open shame by the victorious triumph of Jesus in his cross. And this conflict grows and it, and it kind of boils over in Acts 7 and 8 where Stephen is murdered and that sparks a full-blown persecution against the, the fledgling church by the powerful religious leaders in Jerusalem at the time. Um, they, being led by Saul, they were uh, dragging them out of their homes, throwing them into prison, and killing some. But this scattering of the disciples in this persecution led not to despair, but as we just noted a moment ago, to the evangelization of Judea and Samaria in Acts 8 and 9. Uh, as well as a significant period of peace for the church, since one of its main detractors, Saul, whom I just mentioned, when he was in Acts 9, confronted, converted, and commissioned as an apostle by the Lord Jesus himself. And then in Acts 10 and 11, we saw the Lord formally include uh, Gentiles into the New Covenant church. It wasn't just for the Jews, but for the nations. We see this first through the ministry of Peter, but then through the ministry of Barnabas and Saul, which is where we uh, ended in Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. 
And when we concluded with Acts 11, we saw Barnabas and Saul ministering among the saints at Antioch and receiving gifts from the brothers there to take to Jerusalem for those who would be most affected by a famine that Agabus had predicted. And it is during this time, this gathering of these resources by Barnabas and Saul in Antioch, it's during this time when the kingdom of man once again steps to the kingdom of God. Remember, the church had been marked by peace ever since Acts 9.31, but that was about to give way to more persecution. And yet, as so often happens, when the when, with the arrogant plans of the wicked, the arrogant plans of sinful man, this new surge of animosity against God's people that we will read about in just a moment here in Acts 12, it does not bring about its intended effect, at least not the effect intended by those bringing the persecution. So let's read Acts 12, 1 through 24, and then I will... Outline the passage for us and we will get to work. Acts 12, beginning in verse 1, says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold... An angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. 
Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's, on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. There are three things that I want you to see with me this morning from the text before us. First, in verses 1-5, through we'll see the the persecuting efforts of the kingdom of man resumed once again against the kingdom of God. Second, verses 6-17, through we'll see how God's kingdom continues, nevertheless, to resist the attack of man's kingdom. And third, in verses 18 through 24, we'll see God's kingdom doesn't just resist the attack, but goes on the offense, delivering a devastating attack upon the kingdom of man itself. So, the attack of the kingdom of man, the resistance by the kingdom of God, and then the, then the offensive attack by the kingdom of God. First, in verses 1 through 5. We see the kingdom of man resume its originally scheduled program as it persecutes the church once again. Luke tells us about that time, and as I said in the introduction, this was when the church in Antioch likely, it's a vague description here, but it's, it's generally the time when they were collecting relief for the brothers in Judea through Barnabas and Saul, likely even before they sent Barnabas and Saul to Jerusalem. But it was around this time that Herod the king uh, Herod the Great's grandson says, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. We're told that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And upon seeing how it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. And immediately we should be struck by just how much of a temptation this could have been to the church to begin to panic. Think about it. Peter, James, and John were arguably the three most prominent apostles. They were the three apostles closest to Jesus in his earthly ministry. It was Peter, James, and John that Jesus took with him into the house to witness him raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. We read that in Luke 8. It was Peter, James, and John that Jesus took with him on the Mount of Transfiguration where he was transfigured before them in his glory in Luke 9. It was Peter, James, and John that Jesus took with him deeper into Gethsemane that he might be closer to them while he prayed during his great distress the night before his crucifixion. It's Matthew 26. And so think for a moment 
what this would have been like for them. Put yourself in their shoes if you are able. You're a disciple of Jesus. You've been devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching for several years now. You've been blessed by the ministry of these men. Perhaps have even right met with these men. These men have prayed for you and walked with you and comforted you. They've taught you. These are the men who walked with Jesus Himself, saw His resurrection. The persecution after Stephen's death has mostly abated. The church has been walking in a a season for some time now, walking in the fear of the Lord, experiencing untold levels of comfort from the Holy Spirit. The Lord was daily adding to the church those who were being saved, Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles. Right At this time, you're thinking the gospel knows no bounds. The kingdom of man made its attempt in Acts 7 and 8, but it was thwarted. It failed miserably. Surely the kingdom of man must recognize Christ's supremacy over all things. The day of the Lord has come, brothers and sisters. God's kingdom's here to stay. And then in a moment, without warning, James is dead. Peter's in prison, likely to be on the chopping block next. Yeah, others have have died. And the apostles were arrested back in Acts 5. But now one of them is dead. And Peter of all, could be next. How would it land on you? What would it be like for you? Your beloved leader's lives hanging in such a balance. If they could kill James, and likely will kill Peter soon, is there no end to the destruction coming for the rest of us? What misery will this man Herod bring upon the kingdom of God? Would you, would you doubt? Would you be tempted to fear? Would you begin to question, thinking, maybe I was wrong about all the good things that were happening in our midst? Would you begin to question God's goodness, or at least His good intentions toward you? Would you begin to question God's power? Thinking, well, maybe He did the best He could. Yeah, we, we overcame Acts 7 and 8, but it, it just wasn't enough. There's too many enemies out there. God won a few battles, but the kingdom of man is going to win the war. As tempted as we might be to crumble under such pressure, it's instructive for us to consider how the, the disciples, how the church at the time responded to the death and imprisonment of its most precious leaders. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They didn't despair. They didn't panic. They didn't collapse in fear or give up. They didn't complain. They didn't sit in stunned silence. What did they do? They prayed just as they had seen Peter do on 
surely at this point numerous occasions. Perhaps most notably in Acts 4, when he is arrested with John, and they get out, and they go back to their friends, the brothers, and they pray for boldness to keep preaching Christ. They likely remembered the time that in Acts 5, Peter and the apostles had been arrested and then uh, released miraculously by an angel of the Lord. And perhaps they're thinking, if it can happen once, surely it could happen again. The church had seen the faith, the determination, the hope, and the prayerful dependence of Peter. And so rather than falling apart at this great trial in Acts 12, they respond just as Peter had responded at previous trials, just as he had seen the Lord Jesus do at his own trials with prayer. And as for Peter himself, we read this in the next section, but it's worth mentioning here. What's he doing? Sleeping. He's not panicked. He's asleep. Trusting in God, defying death with a calm that we could only hope to have in such circumstances. Now, I want to think about the power of prayer in a moment under our second heading, but I I want to wrap up this first point here with this thought, or several thoughts, but what about us? What about you? Do, Do you, do we confront our needs with earnest prayer like the church does here? I don't mean do we toss up a quick Hail Mary of a prayer when we don't know what else to do. I don't mean when you've exhausted all your other resources, all your other options, all your other answers, that you finally go to the Lord with a prayer. I mean when you are confronted with a problem, big or small, is it your habit? Is it our habit, first and foremost, from the get-go, to pray? As a church, are we committed to praying for ourselves and for others who are in need? When you hear of someone who's been diagnosed with cancer, do you immediately think prayer? And then do you pray? When you hear of someone who's facing a hostile work environment, do you think prayer? And do you pray? When you hear of Others, maybe in this country, but certainly around the world, you hear of others facing a hostile, persecuting government. Do you think? Prayer. And do you pray? Are we utterly convinced that prayer is meaningful and that it is time well spent? How tempted are you when you hear of some calamity or you experience some calamity? How tempted are you to immediately launch into action? You start working, doing things. How quickly do you just start going? Or perhaps for us, for some here, it's the opposite. How quickly do you fall into some type of fearful lethargy where you just want to sit down and mourn with nothing else? Brothers and sisters, let us pattern our lives and our ministry here at Redeemer Baptist Church after the early church in this regard. No matter what we face, let us commit right now together that our first 
And our constant act will be to bring our needs before the Sovereign Lord in earnest prayer. I love that Luke says it was earnest prayer. Not just prayer, but earnest prayer. Earnest speaks of a deep conviction, a desperateness. It wasn't casual prayer. It wasn't flippant. It was desperate, needy sufferers beseeching the great God who loves them. Friends, we face insurmountable obstacles. We face Invincible dangers according to human power and wisdom. So let's be committed to earnest prayer for our lives before God. God who overcomes insurmountable obstacles. The God who obliterates invincible dangers with ease. So that's our first point this morning, is the persecution that breaks out against the church, and yet church is committed to prayer. Let's move to our second point then, verses 6-17, through where we see Peter's miraculous rescue from prison as the kingdom of God defends mightily against the attack of the kingdom of man. Now, there are a lot of really interesting details in these verses, um, and I think the gist of why Luke writes this section in the way that he does, piling up all these very sort of maybe odd, minuscule details, is because he is seeking to confirm the, the historicity, the reliability of these events. That it's, it's a particularly unbelievable situation in which Peter f- found himself. Uh, Peter himself and the rest of the disciples even, as we'll see, struggled to understand what was happening. And so Luke wants uh, Theophilus, the man to whom he's writing, and, and beyond that, the rest of us, to, 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 to be well assured that as these little details pile up, he's, he's adding weight to the, the truthfulness of this story. Probably the most notable aspect of it is the name dropping that he does. He, he said, hey, if you don't believe me, you can go and ask Mary, John, Mark, or Rhoda, to name a few, who were there. They witnessed this. But beyond that, beyond just establishing the, the reliability of what he's saying here, he's doing something else. He, he wants us to see the God-centeredness of this story. Think about it. What do these details tell you about the work of God and the work of man? Peter isn't working. Peter is sleeping. Bound between two guards with others at the door and and on the prowl. He's got chains on his hands. There's a gate in his way. As I said a moment ago, no one even really believed the rescue happened or was happening. Even Peter himself was thinking, man, this is a crazy dream. It's going to be a real bummer to wake up still in prison. The point, God must act. God must act. Peter, there is nothing that Peter can do. There's nothing the church can do in themselves to change Peter's situation, to change theirs. God must 
act. Even the angel, he's got to kick him in the side and give him step-by-step instructions about what to do. God must act, and Luke says, hey, he has. He is. This is what God did. And so I want to press into to this. Right? Luke, having established this, the reliability of this sort of unbelievable story, and establish the power of God behind it, he wants his readers to be confronted by at least two questions. The first is this. Do you believe in the power of prayer? The second, can you rejoice that even when your faith is weak, God still answers and works? I don't recall where I read it, It wasn't even this week, but uh, regarding the power of prayer as seen here in Acts 2, uh, as the, the author to the Hebrews so often says, it has somewhere been stated, yes, it was an angel that fetched Peter from prison. But what was it that fetched the angel? Was it not the prayer of the church? Isn't that marvelous, dear saints? On the very night... When Herod was planning to bring Peter out to hand him over to the Jews to kill him, on that night, the angel shows up. We're not told how long he was in prison. How long was the church praying? Days? Weeks? As an important aside, help from God often shows up at the very last moment. When when truly all help is gone in human terms. But this event here raises this fundamental question. Do you believe in the power of prayer? When you face trial and tribulation, when you face temptation and torment, and you pray, right? So earlier we said, do you pray? When that happens, do you quickly pray? But not just do you pray because you know you ought to, but do you pray believing that God is actually going to answer your prayer? Jesus tells us in the Gospels that you do not have because you do not ask. That seems to strongly imply that if we would but ask, we would have. Now, James He offers this thought. Sometimes we ask and don't receive because we ask wrongly to spend it on ourselves, on our our passions. So there is a kind of asking that is wrong, and it doesn't lead to marvelous displays of the power of God to which we are given given access by, by prayer. But there is a kind of asking that does bring the very power of God to bear upon the affairs of men and the kingdoms of this world. So let's ask ourselves, what are the things as individuals, as families, as a church, that we should be praying about? That we should be asking God for and expecting a powerful answer from Him? I want to name four things. And that might seem, I don't know, maybe like a lot, maybe like a little. Maybe it seems presumptuous, but I think once I name them, you won't think so. What are they? Four things. 
Wisdom, humility, patience, and love. Could list a lot of things, but I think presently these are four important things for us to be praying about. None of them come naturally to our fallen selves. We need the power of the Spirit. And so think about us as a church. As, as our community grows, both uh, the surrounding community here and, and our church community within, we are going to be faced with more and more opportunities to, to love one another. More and more opportunities to die to ourselves. More and more opportunities to grieve with one another in losses. And so how is it that we need to do that? Well, we need to do it wisely. We need to do it humbly, patiently, and lovingly. So would you join me in asking God to grant us a greater experience of the Lord Jesus and that as we walk with Him, we would be conformed to His image that we might grow in humility, patience, love, and wisdom. And believe that God is eager to answer that prayer. Pray according to His will, and brothers and sisters, you got it. But a second point to make from from these verses here would be this. Let us praise God that even when our faith is low, even when your belief is weak, God is not bound by your limitations. Now, of course, this doesn't excuse faithlessness, but it does give us hope to see that God does what He pleases even when we aren't ready for it. The church had been praying here in Acts 12. And yet, they were shocked and couldn't believe that God had answered their prayer. Rhoda, you are crazy. You are out of your mind. There is no way Peter is standing at the gate. Okay, fine. Something's at the gate. Maybe it's his angel. Whatever that means. So, some explanation what they, what they might mean here. It seems that they thought that a more likely explanation than that God had answered their prayer was that Peter had some sort of angelic counterpart and that Peter was dead and that his guardian angel, so to speak, had come to tell them the sad news. Now Luke here isn't really confirming or denying the existence of such things. But he is highlighting just how weak our faith can be at times. It is interesting, the, the interplay here, when, when Peter realizes what's going on, he recognizes that it was, he says, the Lord's angel that rescued him out of prison. And then the saints in the house thought that it was Peter's angel at the gate. So but whatever his angel means, here's the question. What is the thing that you just can't imagine God doing? 
What's the prayer that you cannot imagine God will answer? Which relative? What is, who is the relative that just could not possibly come to follow Jesus? What sin are you incapable of putting to death? What trial do you have absolutely no chance of conquering and overcoming? Whatever it is, whatever the thing is, friends, the good news is that there is hope. Even when your faith is weak, even when your faith is low and small, God acts. And He is working in the world. He is working in you. He's working in us. And so there is tremendous hope for the people of God. Third heading, then, verses 18 through 24. And we're going to run through this quickly. We've seen the kingdom of man make its attack on the kingdom of God. We've seen the resistance of the kingdom of God. But now, there is a turning of the tables of sorts. Here in these verses, the kingdom of God goes on the attack once again. Previously in Acts, going on the attack meant something like rescuing loads and loads of Jews and Gentiles from bondage. Here it looks like executing a wicked leader of the kingdom of man. In these verses, 18 through 24, we see a few things. We see a great disturbance among the kingdom of man over Peter's disappearance. We see Herod's murder of the guards who were in charge and his trip down to Caesarea and what happened there. We're told that while he was there, um, he was angry with Tyre and Sidon. And so the people had come to him formally to petition him for peace through Blastus, their representative that they had to persuade, possibly bribe his, his chamberlain. So Blastus makes his petition, and when it's time for him to give his response, uh, Herod makes this lengthy oration. And we're not given the content of the speech, but based on the crowd's response, we really have come to know all that we need to know about it. In particular, who was at the center of this speech? The crowds took him for divinity, for deity, and Of course, the arrogant Herod gladly receives it and accepts it. And immediately, he was struck down and he died to be eaten by worms. And yet, in an astounding sort of summary statement here at the end, Herod is dead, but the Word of God increased and multiplied. How often does Luke want us to see this? God's Word, God's people, God's kingdom, multiplying, advancing, conquering. That's what we need to know here. God's Word and its kingdom increased and multiplied. It advanced. It continued to conquer. Herod, with all his might, with all his guards, with all his centuries, with all his power, drops dead. Now, on the one hand, 
that might provoke some level of fear in you if you recognize pride in your own heart. I just thought about it a second ago. I'm up here talking in front of all of you. Help me to be humble, Lord. And yet, doesn't it also, increasingly so, give you great joy and confidence as the people of God? This whole interchange in Acts 12 demonstrates for you the power of God over the forces of evil. Herod can arrest Peter, no matter. It's fine. God will send an angel to gently walk him out the door. Herod can boast and brag and say whatever he wants to about himself, no matter. His ticket's punched. It all, this whole thing began with a death, and it ends with a death. The first death, James, and the imprisonment of Peter, might tell you to fear, might tell you Things are out of control. But these last verses here in this section, especially verse 24, tells us nothing's out of of control. Through the prayers of His people, God was pleased to deliver Peter from prison easily. And He delivered him for further ministry. He goes, He reports, and then He goes off again. And in the end, wicked Herod came into judgment. He came to a humiliating end. But God's word continued to increase and multiply. So let me close with two questions here. To, I imagine, two groups of people who may be here this morning. First, while Peter's slumber in prison is likely a demonstration of his faith, Perhaps there are some, or there is someone here slumbering this morning. Similarly asleep, and yet for an entirely different reason. Maybe you are here today spiritually slumbering, cold toward God, cut off from God. I pray, and prayed I'm praying for this very sermon to be as the angel in Peter's side to yours. Wake up, sleeper! You are fast bound in chains. And your death may approach sooner than you think. But a messenger calls out to you at this very moment. Wake up! So the question for you... Will you rise and follow? But for the other group, whom I imagine would make up the majority of us here, in the early days of the church here, we see an ebb and a flow of conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. We see periods of peace, periods of rising conflict, Periods of intense persecution. But it all tends to the same end. Over and over and over again. The increase of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, then. The question for you. 
would you pray with me that it would be so among us? That whatever peace, whatever persecution, whatever trials, whatever triumphs we face, may God's Word continue to increase and multiply here at Redeemer Baptist Church, bringing many sons and daughters into His kingdom for His glory in the advancement of His name in all the earth. Amen.